Well, good morning, folks. Thank you so much for your gracious welcome and for your kindness in giving me the privilege of opening the word here again in Hamilton. I really enjoy my visits to you, and I had something prepared for you, and then I felt a nudge that I should go off in a different direction, so I, I, I hope that I've got it right. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17. We're going to read part of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. Chapter 17, verse 20, down to the end of verse 26. And in this, the heading in my Bible is that Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And we do pray that God will add his uh, own blessing to the reading of his precious word. I've been thinking a little bit uh, over the last wee while about the church. And I find it very strange that there are lots of folks who love Jesus but who just don't like church. And that's true, isn't it? I, sus I suspect that a lot of folks have been wounded in church. Paul tells Timothy that we're all soldiers, and as soldiers, we all bear scars. And sadly, those scars most often represent wounds that have been inflicted, not by the enemy, but by fellow soldiers. And it ought not to be like that, but it is. And so my question this morning that I start with is simply this. Why is the church we preach about so different from the church we preach to? That's a challenge, isn't it? Why is the church we preach about so different from the church we preach to? And I go back to the Acts of the Apostles to try to work out what was going on at the, the start of the church when the church was established. Well, we know that Christianity had spread south uh, to Ethiopia through the Ethiopian eunuch. We know that it had gone north then through Samaria to Damascus, and then it went west to the coast of the Mediterranean. And we know that Paul had a missionary journey uh, into Turkey, and he almost certainly was very busy sharing his faith. So what was really happening? Well, if you can imagine uh, a bottle of perfume and you take the stopper off, the aroma 
just kind of wafts all over the place. And that really what was happening. Very many years ago, before I went off to college, I worked in business, and on one occasion I had to go to visit a factory in Southern Ireland that was called the International Flavors and Fragrances. I'd never been to the industrial estate where the factory was, so I pulled up in my car and there was a great big board that listed all of the companies. Unfortunately, it didn't list their location, so I opened the window and there was a guy going past on his bicycle, and I said to him, can you tell me where the factory is for the international flavors and fragrances? And he laughed at me. He said, follow your nose. <laughs> and you know, when he said that, I began to breathe deeply, and I could smell this beautiful fragrance, and I followed my nose, and I found out where the factory was, and I parked my car, and I went into the reception area, and I said to the lady, good morning or good afternoon, whatever time it was, I, I, I said, what a wonderful aroma to work in. And she looked at me and said, what aroma? She wasn't aware of it. Well, I walked around the factory, and I did what I was supposed to do, and on my way home, I stopped at a garage to get a bar of chocolate or an apple or something healthy. And uh, while I was doing that, I stood in a queue, and there was an elderly lady in front of me waiting to pay. And all of a sudden, she went, and she started to turn around and looked at me up and down as though uh, I was wearing an excess of, of perfume. But six weeks later, I was driving my mother somewhere, and I happened to have on the same pair of shoes that I'd worn that day as I walked around the factory. And my mother said, whoa, I had the heater on because it was cold. It was blowing hot air around our feet. And my mother said, what's that wonderful aroma? And I was able to explain it to her. The aroma lingers and wafts around. And that's exactly what was happening. The fragrance of Christ was spreading out from Jerusalem. Well, in chapter 9 of the Acts of the Apostles, we find that Peter is moving out of Jerusalem, and he goes to a place called Lydda, and there he finds a man called Aeneas, who had been paralyzed for eight years and bedridden, and he just commands him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and tidy up your mat, and the man was healed, and he got up, and uh, he began to walk, and people were absolutely amazed, and then Peter went on um, uh, to, to, to Joppa, and when he was in uh, Joppa, there was a lady called Dorcas there, or Tabitha. And it says in the text that she was always doing good. What a great testimony that was. She was always going around and doing good to the poor. And, of course, she died. And, of course, people came and they said to Peter, can you, can you come? And Well, Peter went to the house and he got them all out of the room and he began to pray and he said, Tabitha, get up. And she got up and people were absolutely amazed. In fact, it says in verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. What a marvelous miracle. What an extraordinary time it was for the early church. There was tremendous excitement because God was at work. And people, their lives are being impacted. It was a marvelous time. But one of the problems at that time was that the gospel had only been preached to the Jews. But we know that God's heart was that the gospel should be given to all people because it is good news for all people. Now, do you remember 
how the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ was announced. Do you remember it was first announced to the shepherds? Right? And they were almost certainly Jewish. But wasn't it also announced to the Magi, the wise men, from the east? And they most certainly weren't Jewish. But if you really want to get a glimpse of the heart of God on this issue, think about the temple and the design of the temple. I don't know if you can see it. It's a bit small, perhaps, on the screen. But there you've got the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the, the, the court of the priests, and then the outer court of the women. But the very outer court of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. So when God passed on the plans for the temple, it was in his heart that the Gentiles might catch a glimpse, albeit from a little distance, of the principle of substitutionary atonement or the idea of sacrifices being offered for sins. Now, Joppa was a place where the Gentiles lived. It wasn't a Jewish town. And ordinarily, Peter would have felt absolutely contaminated by being there. But God was working in his heart to soften him. And we find a really significant verse, verse 43, the last verse of the chapter. And it's easy to read over it and, and, and miss its significance. It says, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. He stayed in the home of a tanner named Simon. Now, do please understand that the tanners were despised. Why? Because by virtue of what they did, they were continually unclean. They were handling dead animals. In fact, the tanner was so despised that the law said that the tanner had to live 50 cubits or 27 feet outside the boundary of any village or town. So they were really unpopular. In fact, if a girl was betrothed, engaged to get married. She needed a certificate of divorce to break the betrothal if she kind of changed her mind. Unless she discovered that her intended was a tanner. And then she didn't need a certificate of divorce. She could just dump him because tanners were despised and unpopular. I once went to a tannery. I didn't go into it. I went past it. Uh, in the course of uh, business, and I can tell you, I, I would go out of my way to avoid it. The stench was just absolutely appalling. And yet Peter met a tanner called Simon who loved the Lord, and he did the unthinkable thing. He went to stay with them. Now, that was a step too far for the Jews. Isn't it true that we have our traditions which, for the most part, have been a great blessing to us. But not every tradition has been a blessing. Some traditions can become big problems. Now, let me illustrate that to you from the Scriptures so that you'll not argue with me at the door on the way out. You will remember that when God's people were leaving uh, Egypt and on their journey to the promised land, some of them um, began to complain, and God was so angry with them that he sent serpents to bite them. Do you remember that? 
And you remember the solution? The Lord, in Numbers 21, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who, can spit, who, who is bitten can look at it and live. What a beautiful picture that is of Jesus in the New Testament, that we should look at him and live. But here these folks were. Those snakes were everywhere. They were being bitten. And all they had to do was to look at this serpent of bronze, and they were, they were going to live, even if, this, if they'd been bitten. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that was. But do you know what happened to that serpent of bronze? Well, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 18, you'll see what Hezekiah does. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Why? For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. They'd been taking out the brasso and polishing it up. That which had been a blessing to them now became a snare. It was a big problem. And we have our traditions, which we hold on to tightly. And not always are those traditions good. Somebody wiser than I once said that sacred cows make the tenderest beef burgers. You need to think about that one. Do you remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Doesn't that mean that God works outside or out with our imaginations? Doesn't it mean that God might at some stage ask us to do something that we couldn't possibly imagine doing? Do you think so? I do. Look with me again at a key text, Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are God's handiwork. The word there is poem. We are God's poem. He is handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God has created us to do good works. And those are the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. So the question I ask you this morning very gently is, are you doing the stuff that he's prepared for you to do, or are you just doing stuff because it needs to be done? And how do we know the difference? I think it's really important that we develop prayerfully convictions about what it is God actually wants us to do, because clearly God has an agenda for the church, and his agenda is much more important than our agendas. Isn't that true? The Christian life has been pictured as a journey through a world that is constantly changing. And our tendency, frankly, is to set up camp where we're comfortable so that we can look back and enjoy the blessings of the past. But we're not called to live life looking in the rearview mirror. Do you remember the first three words that Jesus spoke to those first disciples when he called them? Do you remember what he said to them? He said, come, follow me. And the word follow implies movement. We are to follow. And God, in his wisdom, has placed us exactly where he wants us to be. We know that we are to live, to serve, and witness 
in the world without being contaminated by the world. And if we are to do that, we shall have to understand what God wants us to be. John Stott said, if a church doesn't understand its mission, it tends to end up serving its structures. If a church doesn't understand its mission, it tends to end up serving its structures. And I think all around Scotland, there are churches that are confused as to what God has called us to be. And some are so confused that they don't even hold on to the word of God. So there is a sickness, and folks don't understand who they are and what they are called to be. And that brings us to the prayer that Jesus prayed that we read earlier on. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus was praying there for those who will believe. He was praying for us. He was praying for us. And I find it fascinating to focus on what Jesus actually prayed. You see, surprisingly, he doesn't pray about the quality of our worship. He doesn't pray about the caliber of our evangelism. He actually only makes one request. It has two parts, and he repeats it. Now, when God says something directly, it's important that we take note of it. But when he says something twice, don't you think he wants, it, he wants us to really take note of it? I think so. I think he really wants us to take note of what he says to us. In verse 18, Jesus says to his Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So we learn, first of all, that we are a sent people. If you like, there is a mission. We are sent. And he says in verse 21, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is part of our mission. He goes on to say, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We are sent so that the world may believe and know that Jesus has come from the heart of God the word mission comes from a verb meaning to send, dispatch. And so God sends us into the world with good news that people desperately need to know. We know that God has given us the authority to preach his gospel. The problem is that the world around us doesn't understand that you and I uh, have this God-given authority to preach to them. They don't understand, and as a result, they aren't always very welcoming. So we have to win a hearing. And sadly, the church hasn't always had good press. But the, and the truth is that people won't care what we know until they know that we care. On Friday, I walked up Buchanan Street. And at the top of Buchanan Street, there were three guys. One was handing out literature, and the other two were doing something which I think young people call rap. Uh, I, I'm so old, I don't understand all this. But I, I tried to, my hearing's not great, but I, I, I listened carefully. And they were talking about going to heaven and meeting Jesus. 
And I have to tell you that I thought, thank you, Lord, that here are folks, they're not, not on my wavelength, but they're in somebody else's wavelength. And they're just concerned and committed to sharing the good news. And people won't care what we know until they know that we care. So it's really good to ask questions. We could ask, is the church in reality organized only for itself, for its own survival and its own convenience, and for the preservation of its privileges? Or is it organized to serve God and the community round about? What are its cherished traditions and conventions which unnecessarily separate it from the community? Is the church, how does it look to the folks who never come in here? What does it look like? Is it austere? Is it cold and forbidding? And suppose somebody comes in and they've never been here before and they, they just want to use the bathroom. Would they find it easily? Or would they be embarrassed to have to say to somebody, excuse me, could you tell me where the bathroom is? What about the services? I, I used to say, uh, please stand and sing. I'm not saying it now just in case you wake up and think that I am. <laughs> I used to say stand and sing. Why? Because we, we had this kind of liturgy. We used to say, well, uh, we're going to stand and sing such and such. And then they would play the introit. But the person who was new to the church would just hear the word stand, so they would stand up and they would become painfully aware that they were the only ones standing, so they would slowly sink down while everybody else was standing up. And it didn't make them feel comfortable. So I used to do that at the appropriate time because I didn't want folks to feel uncomfortable. So the question is, do the structures promote growth, or are they growth inhibitors? What's, what is your priority in Hamilton Baptist? I, I can ask you, because I don't know. What are you, what's your priority? Well, let's look at Paul's priority, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. By all possible means, even rap on Buchanan Street. Why? I do this for the sake of the gospel. This is these are Paul's priorities. Paul was willing to become flexible for the sake of the gospel. Well, what about us? They do say that when the devil was kicked out of heaven, he landed in the church choir stalls. And music has been a source of contention ever since. 
And sometimes when I was in ministry, I had to be polite to everybody. Uh, shouldn't have said that. Um, people would come and they would, you know, dump on me, didn't like that hymn. And I used to say, well, Bishop Michael Bourne used to say, if you're choosing hymns for service, you should always include one that you don't like. And if it isn't the way you like it, the spiritually mature response is to say, Father, I didn't like that, but I pray that you'd make it a blessing to others. That's providing there's nothing theologically up, you know, off about the particular thing. What about musical, musical instruments? Some folks are, have a bee in their bonnet about instruments, and yet the Psalms are full of musical instruments, aren't they? You see, it's not about us. It's not about our preferences. It's about God. It's about the gospel. And it's about kingdom building. And some people fall out over these issues. And when they do that, the testimony is damaged. And that's why James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And our aim ought to be to please God. Our Father, isn't that right? Again, John Stott wrote in his little book, The Radical Disciple, which I commend to you. He wrote, wrote about a Hindu professor identifying one of his students as a Christian. Once said, if you Christians lived like Jesus Christ, India would be at your feet tomorrow. He also quotes... Um, the Reverend Iskander Jadid, a former Arab Muslim who said, if all Christians were Christians, there would be no more Islam today. And part of our shame is that we're virtually indistinguishable from good folks who don't know Jesus round about. We're virtually indistinguishable. I think the Lord wants us to be committed to making Christ visible. And Jesus goes on and he begins to pray not only about the mission that he has given us, he begins to pray about unity. He prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now in the early church, there was a great deal of growth, but there was very little organizational unity. And as the years passed, there grew organizational unity. And today, there is a great deal of confusion. Did you know that in Scotland, that there are 10 different shades of Presbyterianism, 10 different Presbyterian denominations? And lest we sit on our Baptist high horse, there's more than one expression of, 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 of Baptist convictions in Scotland as well. And I think the Lord must look down, and I think he must weep. Jesus prayed for unity. He didn't pray for uniformity. We don't have to be all the same. Some of the Psalms are long. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. Psalm 117 has two verses. So it's okay sometimes to be long and it's okay sometimes to be brief. Some of the Psalms are pensive and reflective and some of them are very exuberant. And that's okay. That's okay. 
Some folks are drawn to a worship that is loud and youthful. And some aren't, but that's okay. What isn't okay is when our unity is impacted. Francis Schaeffer said, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees something of the reality of the oneness of true Christians. The secret to unity is simply coming as close to Jesus as we possibly can. Now let me illustrate that for you very simply. There you have a cross. And gathered near the cross, there are four folks. There's Andrew, there's Bill, there's Kathy, and there's Deborah. Now, Andrew doesn't really like Bill a whole lot. He's pretty indifferent to Kathy. But you see, Deborah, he can't stand Deborah. And the feeling is mutual. Deborah thinks he's a wally, and she has no time for him at all. And, and, and Bill isn't too keen about Deborah. And Kathy just doesn't care because she doesn't really think about other folks. Well, there isn't unity there. Well, what happens when they come close to Christ? Well, isn't it obvious that when we come close to Christ, we come closer to each other? Isn't that right? Isn't that, isn't that obvious? The Bible is packed with instructions with regard to unity. Hebrews 12 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And why do you think it says make every effort? Don't you think because sometimes it takes effort? I think so. The authorized version describes God's people as God's peculiar people. And some of them really are peculiar. And I think he has the very peculiar ones fairly evenly distributed amongst the churches to keep us all humble and trusting. Don't you think so? But this is really important. This is really important. You may know that little old poem, uh, To live above with saints we love, oh my, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And there's an element of truth in that, isn't there? But we have to love others as Jesus has loved us. And that's demanding. But, but that's the bottom line. That's, we have the mission, and here we have the method of the mission, and the method of the mission is that we love one another. And Jesus prayed that our unity would make the love of Christ visible. I, I, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So sadly, divisions in the church breathe atheism in the world. And I have sometimes wondered if the best kept secret in the church is John thirteen thirty five. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm so glad that I'm visiting you because I'm not speaking to anybody in particular. I have no idea of the, the blessings or the buffetings. I just know that there are always blessings and there are always buffetings. But God is saying to us, I've sent you on a mission. As the Father sent Jesus, so I'm sending you. That's the mission. And the method of the mission is unity. 
that the love of Christ might be made visible. And Jesus says that it is the mark by which his disciples are to be known as Christians, not only to him, not only to one another, but to everyone. And Francis Schaeffer says that this is frightening, and he's right, because it's as if Jesus turns to the world and says, I've got something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to all Christians. Even if people come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we're not Christians because we haven't shown love towards others, we must understand that they are only exercising the prerogative that Jesus gave to them. And if somebody ever says that to you, don't get angry. Don't get angry. Go home and get down on your knees and ask God whether they're right. And if they are, then you need to ask God for help. Recognizing that they have the right to say whatever they have said. What kind of love must we show if the world is to look at it and conclude that it is explainable only? Lord, I, I really didn't know. I didn't realize that that's what you wanted because it's there in black and white and it's been laid in front of us very simply this morning. Every adult Christian generation owes it to its young people, owes its young people a demonstration of what it believes and preaches. We are called to be distinct in a world of blurred distinctions. One of the first things that was said of those early Christians was, look at how they love each other. Wouldn't that be a wonderful testimony if the folks around the corner, instead of complaining about everybody parking their parking spaces, we're commenting on the courtesy, the generosity, and the warmth of God's people in this place. Let's pray together. Lord God, we bless you and praise you for all that you are and for all that you have done. We have to confess, O oh Lord, that there are times when we struggle with what we read in the Scriptures. We struggle, O oh Lord, because it so often impacts our comfort zones and the way we live. But Lord, as our heads are bowed in your presence, we just want to ask you, would you please have mercy on us and help us that we might not be saved and stuck, but that we might have a hunger to go on, to grow, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us, that we might be all that you desire us to be so that we might be useful to you in your service. For, oh God, we have a longing to see the kingdom grow. We have a longing to see 
folks coming to faith and worshipping you. So Lord, as the psalmist prays, show me a sign of your goodness that others might see it. Just pray that you'd bring a sign of your goodness into this church family in these days that there might be much fruit that would cause rejoicing in heaven. So please, O oh Lord, in your mercy, continue with us because we ask it and we give you thanks in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.